Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Corey Yeager is a psychotherapist for the NBA's Detroit Pistons and most recently featured on Oprah and Prince Harry's The Me You Can't See on Apple TV. He's here today to chat about his new book titled How Am I Doing? 40 Conversations to Have with Yourself, which aims to help you raise awareness of your thoughts and emotions and reconnect with who you want to be. Amen. Corey, welcome. Thank you so much, Jason. Good to be with you today. Great to have you. And you know, I'm curious, what's the why behind this book for you? I think the why is really connected and rooted in um, the importance in something that we haven't really been given a lot of, of understanding around, and that's ourselves, right? We don't, we don't really haven't been taught from the time that we come onto this earth until the time that we leave. No one really focuses on the individual self, like truly focuses on get, getting better acquainted with who we are, with who we are. I think we do a really good job as human beings of connecting with others. I think that's really, we're taught that and, you know, people support that. But when it comes to really knowing who we are as individuals, as self, and being curious with ourselves, we're not great with that. So when we ask, when you ask about the why of the book, it is about finding the ability to be curious with self. The one way that you can know something better is to be curious about it. Never be all knowing about anything, even about yourself. Um, so that's really the connected to the why of the book is is that better being better acquainted with who we are and being curious about that. And we don't teach that in school these days. Huh? No, we don't. No. And, and, and I, and I think that's probably by design, right? That we want, we want a society that's going to be focused on one another, that everybody's going to be connected and make sure that you support your wife and your significant other and your kids. And, but if we do that, where do we come? Do I come 10th on the list? Do I come 15th on the list? Um, I submit that we should come first on the list and that's not being selfish. I think that's actually an important point because if you're not happy with yourself, you're not going to be able to give anyone you love what you have to give. Uh, you're going to be constantly depleted. And I think we need to hear that. Yeah. So when you say, if you can't give yourself what you need, that means you can't give it to anyone else. I think that if we can get better acquainted and better focused and sharper on understanding self, that means I show up in the world as a better version of myself. And that's really what we all should be seeking, is that we can all show up as a be the best version of ourselves today. And then that I will challenge that version tomorrow that I have today. So if I show up as this version of Corey today, just the conversation that I have with you will make me a better person tomorrow. I'll learn a few things about you, about myself, that when I show up tomorrow, I'm probably a little better. I have a little more info. So I think that's important. And so what I really like about your book is you frame up this, this bigger idea through the series of 40 questions that one should ask oneself. And I really enjoyed the questions. I could run through every one, but I, I picked some of my favorites. So what I'm going to do is just go one through one and I'm going to frame up the question and tee it up for you. So, so, so the first one I enjoyed, what are your wildest dreams? I love that. So 
if I just think about my wildest dreams, one of the things that I, as I talk to players in the NBA, they are living their wildest dream. So as I engage with them, and if I ask them that question, they're like, Doc, look around. I'm in the middle of my wildest dream. So that means sometimes we can arrive in the midst of our wildest dream. I am in my wildest dream as I work with NBA players every day. I look around knowing that I'm in the midst of my wildest dream. But that also means once we get or attain that space, we have to reassert ourselves. We have to look around and say, all right, what's the next dream? Because sometimes if it's a wild dream, we don't even think that we'll attain it. Um, so my wildest dream was working in the NBA. Now it's it's starting to morph into new spaces. I, I had a wild dream of being an author. Well, I, I got that done. So now I'm in the midst of saying, all right, so what's next? Um, so I think that we need that wild dream that drives us. And that is not dependent on what other people think. So it's okay if Jason agrees, but it's also okay if Jason disagrees with my wild dream. That's fine because it's not his dream. It's mine. So that wild dream, I always think about it this way, Jason, is that it's something that I'm driving towards. Got to have something that I can drive towards that's out in the distant future that I know I'm progressing towards. Um, and I may not get there, but I may. Um, and being able to reassess once I do get there. So what do you think happens as we age? Because if, if I think of wildest dreams and dreaming, kids do this so well. And, and, and I think, you know, maybe teens do it. I don't know. I think when I was a teen, I dreamed big. And then we age. And then the dreams fade. Reality sets in. Yeah, that's just because we allow it to be so, Jason. I believe that you hit it on the nose. One of the things that I talk about is what when we're about 12, 13, 11, 12, 13, we're kind of taught to stop having this, this dreamy, visualized world, right? That we used to have these visualizations and, and all these different dreams that we had. And then at about 12 or 13, we are start to we start being told, got to buckle down, high school's coming, grades are going to start to count, you want to go off to college. And we they everybody kind of tells us, without telling us, to put all that dreamy visualization stuff on the sideline. I think this is the time we need to hold on it to, to the most. That this dream, this visualization process should follow us and develop over time as we get older. I should get better at it. Um, but I believe you're 100% right that we, we forget to do it. Um, we're almost, without saying, being told to stop doing it and to get to the business at hand. I think that's a huge mistake. I want to have wild dreams and, and to be vividly imagining what could be because that'll drive me. And what do you recommend to an adult who's listening right now and saying, you know what? I've just completely lost this part of me. How, how do I get started again? What, what, are, what are some baby steps someone can take here? Yeah, so if, we, if we've lost it, and many of us have, we've kind of lost that sense of dreaminess. Um, and if someone's listening and they're wanting to re-engage with that, I think one of the things that we can do simply is give ourselves permission to begin that process to, again, to re-engage with that dreaminess, that, that visualization piece. And one way in which to do it is to find a little bit of time to do it intentionally every day. 
just a little bit of time. And they, that can be, hey, when I wake up first thing in the morning, before I even get out of bed, I'm going to take two or three minutes and just kind of let my mind run wild without checking myself and say, all right, I can't do that. I got work to do. I'm going to find that five minutes somewhere that I can kind of let my mind wander. Um, there's a portion in the book that I talk about what can you do with 23 seconds? And it came from watching, you know, as a former athlete, watching a, guy, a kid get fouled in an NBA game from the moment that he gets fouled to the moment that he shows up at the free throw line, some 20 some odd seconds. Well, I kept watching these players in that 20 some odd seconds thinking they don't really utilize that. So I started talking to players saying, hey, so when you get fouled, before, between the time you get fouled and the time they hand you the ball, what do you do with that time? And they all were baffled, like, I don't do anything. So, so what I submitted, Jason, to them was, do you think that you would shoot free throws better if your heart rate was ramped down? So if you just get fouled, you probably were going to the rack. You probably were really, your heart rate was probably up. So do you think that you would shoot better free throws if that heart rate came down? Yeah, probably. So then if we could be intentional about pulling that heart rate down, probably do a little better. And I had players that started shooting better from the line over the rest of the course of the season. So I think it is about intentionality. That's that my point in that, Jason, is about intentionality. Intentionally find time and space to have those dreams, to have those thought processes and be okay with it. I love that. And I want to speak to your unique role. You're not just a psychotherapist. You're a psychotherapist in the NBA, working with professional athletes. I would argue the, the best athletes in the world. Uh, and so what's different in terms of, you know, the mental health challenges that professional athletes have compared to us mere mortals? I would say, Jason, that, that, that they're or may be some nuanced differences, but really overall, the struggles are quite the same. They're very similar. Um, well, there, there'll be anxiety issues. There's depression issues. You're going to find that same in segments of our society. You're going to find those same issues. Um, but I think the nuance to the struggles that athletes at a high level have is that they don't have the ability, the opportunity to have those private their private life stay private. So if I'm struggling, I could tuck away, put a pair of shades on, walk down the street, and no one's going to know who I am. But if Derrick Rose does it, they're going to know that's D. Rose. So he's not going to get the opportunity that you and I would to just kind of blend in and move around. Because in that blending process, I could probably settle myself. But if I never get that, if I could only, I, I kind of get it a little bit when I close the doors to my home and the only way I can really get sanctuary is to shut off all social media, shut off all phones and stay and hold up in my house. That's really the only way the app, the true major athlete gets time and space. So that is a little different, which if we think about that, I'm going to talk about nuance difference. What anxiety and depression ask for is isolation. They beg for isolation. They breed themselves when you isolate. So athletes are always out in the public eye and everybody wants a piece of them. So what do they want to do? They want to hold up. I want to get away from that. Well, that's a space of anxiety and depression is giggly. Come on in. I want you to hold up. I want you to isolate because I breed myself. 
So I think those are some nuanced spaces. I think they're quite similar, though, to all segments of the society. Um, I think that's just a little bit of the difference. Well, basketball specifically, if you think of basketball players, for the most part, are, are large human beings. They're very tall. And their uniform are shorts and a tank top. And so just if you're walking down the street and you see a professional athlete, so I'll give you an example. I live in Miami now. A week ago, I'm walking in my neighborhood in Coconut Grove. I'm like, that looks like an NBA player. Oh, it's Bam Adebayo. He's massive. He's 6'9". He's got long arms. He's physically, I'm just from behind, I'm like, he's a professional athlete. He's a professional basketball player. Whereas if you play baseball, you know, baseball player could be 5'10". He wears a hat. He wears a long uniform. He's at a distance. Basketball players, you're up close. You can see their nostrils. You can see, you know, <laughs> can see if they've got acne, you can see their acne. They're all there. Football, you wear a helmet. Where basketball, by they're just so visible in that sense. There's really no place to hide. You're going to catch someone's eye, even if they have no idea who you are. Yes, and I think that that's part of that struggle, that they know if I step out, if I step out here at 6'11", People are going to be drawn to me because I'm going to be head and shoulders taller than everybody else anywhere we go. So even if they don't know who I am, they're going to associate me with being some major NBA athlete person. The other thing, too, you hit on it. So I'm a former football player. Well, football is a quite a little bit of a different sport because the uniform covers the face. So if you don't know those guys, other than offensive linemen who are going to be 6'5", 6'7", 330, other than those offensive and defensive linemen, everybody else, you're not going to really know who they are because their face is covered with the uniform. Basketball is so prevalent. The camera's up close and personal. You know that face. You know that person. And they're 6'11". Um, so everyone's drawn to that. So uh, to your point, I think that's, um, that makes it even harder. So you, you mentioned the face. I'm going to segue to, to one of the, the other questions that very much resonated with me. How much time do you spend looking through the mirror? To me, this is the essence of the book. This question, this conversation about the mirror is really the cornerstone of the work um, in my therapeutic endeavors, and really that was created in the book. The mirror tells all, right? And most of the time, what I find, Jason, is that most people don't spend a lot of time engaging in the mirror. That in life, metaphorically, we do a really good job of looking out the window of our lives. And what I mean by that is this. If I look out the window of my life, I can say, oh my God, look at Look at all those people. They're struggling. I'm, you know what, honey? Let's send $100 to them and, and make sure that we've done our part. That's the window of my life. But the mirror of my life says, same issue. What are you doing, Corey, about being supportive? You know that sending $100 really is not a big deal to you. But it soothes your ego. It soothes your soul. But you know you could do so much more. So finding the ability to get in the mirror, which is another space that you can be curious with who you are, right? If I stand in the mirror and ask some tough questions, like some of these questions in the book, and really engage with that man or woman in the mirror, I'll, I'll start to find out things about myself. 
the one thing, there's a question in the book that, that starts off and it, it says, who knows you best? And you've read, so you might, you probably already know, but Jason, who would you say in this world knows you best? Well, I would say it's two people for different reasons. One is my, one is my wife. The other person's my mother. Yes. And so what I would submit, and that, that answer is very similar to what 98% of the people that I ask the question say, I would submit that, that there's no way that that can be true. That the person that knows you best has to be you. Well, yes, of course, yes. Yeah, There are surely things that your wife knows that your mom doesn't know about you. But there are also things that your mom knows about you that your wife doesn't know. And there are also things that your friends know that neither your mom or your wife will know ever. Absolutely, especially my college friends. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the only person that holds all the all-knowing information about Jason is that man in the mirror. That's the only person. So we know ourselves best, but by default, we've been sold a bill of goods that everyone else may know us better than we know ourselves, which is absolutely not true. So better understanding that man or woman in the mirror makes way. You know, I think that's such an important point because I, I feel like many people in our world are searching for answers, whether it's with a health issue or maybe it's in their personal life, they're trying to get some coaching or they're seeing a therapist. And I think culturally, and I understand why, most people just want to be told, just tell me what to do. Just, just tell me the vegetables I need to eat. Just tell me the exercise I need to do. Just tell me, should I, you know, dump the boyfriend or should I try to keep the, keep, keep this relationship going? And I get it. People don't have time. It's a lot easier to just delegate it to someone else, but really we shouldn't do that. We should not do that. And, and, what we have to realize and recognize that usually the things that are the toughest for us to come to understanding around are probably the most important. And there is no magic pill to any of those, should I stay in the relationship or should I not? Why don't you just tell me? There's no magic pill. And first of all, if you go see a therapist or a life coach and you have two or three sessions with them, if you bring your heavy laden question, they don't even know you. They don't know you. So how is it that they really can give you a, a contextually informed answer? They can't because their context is limited about who you are. So what we have to recognize is that those painful, tough moments that we endure, that if, the, if it is pain for the sake only of pain, we'll shy away from it. But if it is a pain that is an indication that we're growing, we'll deal with that. If you tell me that, hey, there's going to be some pain there, but it's really because you're growing into a space that is really important, I'll endure that pain a little more. So if I have life struggles, if you say, if you help me connect to understanding that that struggle is because you're growing into a new space, I'll sit with it a little bit longer. Um, and I think that's part of the piece. But giving our, our deepest, darkest thoughts and secrets to someone after two sessions and asking them what I should do, you're better off asking a friend who knows you. And it's part of what I talk about in the book, the Supreme Court, that we should find and develop a Supreme Court in our lives. Three to five people that are truth tellers that know you well, that will tell you the truth when you have tough questions and situations that you're trying to figure out, go to them and ask them. They'll tell you the truth. Maybe a much different Supreme Court than we have now, but that's another discussion. 
That's old. <laughs> That's right. It, it, you know, it, it comes back, I think, to developing awareness. And my take is developing awareness is a process. It's a journey. It doesn't end. And you have to continually work at it. I'm curious, in that process, how do we become better at self-awareness, at, at being able to identify, hey, this is a painful moment, but there's growth here. Uh, maybe I need to sit with this versus, um, you know, I need to figure this out for myself or, you know, I need to get help. I, I don't know what to do. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm paralyzed. How, how do you get to a place where you're able to sit, ba- sit back and really understand the issue in front of you and identify a viable path forward? I think, Jason, that part of the answer in that question is that what is the destination we seek? Are we seeking, is the destination to seek deep understanding? Or is really the destination to be deeply aware? Do I want to do, which one do, which one am I looking for? For me, in the work that I do, I always say to people, my job is not to change anything for you. It's just to make you deeply aware. And what you choose to do with that is really your call. So I think that this concept of awareness or consciousness is critical to understand that once you attain any level of awareness or consciousness, you never get to turn it off. It's going to be with you forever. You will hope to be able to turn it off because you don't want to think about these things, but they're now there and it's present and you're aware of them. Now, does that mean you're going to make perfect decisions? No, but now you're aware and you get to be conscious of that process. You know, to me, I'm hearing you speak, and I think a critical part of that process is self-reflection and learning from mistakes. And I'm going to segue to, to one of my next favorite questions you ask in the book. If you could change one experience in your past, what would it be and why? I think this question goes to having a deeper sense of all those multiple opportunities and directions that you've had in your life and those decisions that have made you who you are. Um, And if you could rewind, which we know we can't, but if we could rewind and have the imagination to say, if I could change that, I bet that would have happened and that would have happened. It re-engages that imaginative sense. So going back through our lives and thinking through if I did this or that, well, I got, I had some pretty decent division one offers, but ended up going to Long Beach State. And, it, and it, it worked out because I played for Hall of Fame coaches, but I probably should have went to the University of Indiana. They were coming off a Peach Bowl victory. I was going to be a starter. I had a red shirt left. I had a big 10. So I probably, that could have been pretty cool. But I also didn't re- realize, would I have met my wife? Would I have these kids that I have that I love so deeply and dearly? I don't know. But it's fun to be imaginative with that process. And I think it reignites something in us. And that's part of what the question you asked earlier, like, how do you do it? Just playing with that question reignites your imaginative senses. And I think that's what we want to do. So it's interesting. If I think about that question, many of my regrets are around basketball. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we're unique, you and I. My sense is there are many people who played sports at, at a high level and that many of their regrets are around sports. Is that fair to say? And I'm curious 
why, why, what is it about sports specifically? I, I, you know, I don't know exactly what it is, but it is our dreamy world. Sports was our dreamy world. That was the world that we said, man, I just absolutely love it out here. I get to, I always, I feel like when I was on the field, I was free. Everything was free. There was really a note, not a care in the world. And not only was I free, but I got to be with my dogs. I got to be with my guys that I loved and hung out with and through that college experience. So everything was so energetic and electric around that four years that I played. Um, so I think we probably deep down would love to have extended that. Boy, if we got four years in college, what if we could have got four more years in the pros? And if I got four years in the pros, what if I could have got eight or 10 years in the pros? We always probably want to extend that because it, for me, probably some of the funnest times I had in my life. Um, so I think that we, when we didn't get that, we'll connect the concept of regret to it. Man, I wish I would have worked harder in the weight room. I probably would have played another 10 years or five years or, right? I think that's probably a natural sense for athletes. I, I feel the, the same way in terms of what do I miss? I think it's the locker room. And, and we're not unique. You hear players say this all the time. It's, it's not necessarily the, the game, although that, that's obviously part of it. They miss the locker room. They miss the camaraderie. They miss the cheering, the crowds. And it's very difficult for many people to move on post-career. And I'm going to draw a parallel. It's a bit of a stretch, but I'm going to do it anyway. If I think about our society today and social media, I think about the likes, the views, the followers. And to me, it's eerily similar in that when you have that engagement, if you will, it's powerful. It feels good. In the same way, I remember playing uh, in the Carrier Dome when I was a sophomore playing Syracuse and being in that game. There was like the Carrier Dome is insane. There's like 40,000 people there. Even though they weren't cheering for me, I didn't care. Like just that energy, unbelievable. And I think of a kid or a 20-something who, who, who's getting a viral TikTok video or social media that applause and it becomes really hard to walk away from or really hard to not equate your self-worth or identity for for many years i would identify as a basketball you know i play basketball because that's all i knew now i'm on the other side of it i've played i've spent more time not playing basketball at age 48 than I did. <laughs> but and I think about the problems players have, which again are out there for everyone to see. And I think about the mental health epidemic. So where I'm traveling is I see this bigger problem in our culture with social media and self-worth and identities being wrapped up in these platforms. So I'll pause there. I think you got my point. What do you make of all of this? Yeah. So we, I think to some degree, when we, when we use the, the idea around self-worth, who is defining that self, that what worth is? Because we can put the word self in front of, but if it's being defined by other, how good is that? So if I can if I can set up my version of worth and then say, all right, the self-worth connected, I think that's extremely important. The other thing is, is if you think about 
the feeling that you got in the carrier dome. God, that felt good. Even though they weren't screaming for you, I played my first collegiate start was at Clemson in Death Valley with 90,000 people. Ooh, wow. Right? right? That's that, to be. I think, I, think, I think you got, that's the pinnacle right there. I mean, it's, it was crazy, but that's so it was my very first start. That energy from that, you're not going to find. But I would, I would ask you, where, since that Carrier Dome moment in, in those years in college, What's the closest feeling that you've had to that? Since basketball's been done, what's the closest that you've had to that? Oh, that's an easy one. I think it's been speaking publicly with a great crowd. Smaller scale, much smaller scale, but like having a great engaged crowd is an amazing feeling and really powerful. And very and also very fulfilling because we're talking about health and wellness, doing good. You know, it feels good. Very different. I'm not performing per se. Yeah, yeah. I think that 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 would be similar to mine. One of the things that I learned about myself early on when I decided therapy was going to be something that I I would endeavor upon. My wife and I were in therapy, um, and I was struggling. This is maybe eight years, six or eight years after football. So I was still struggling with God. Dang it, there's still guys in the league that I played against. Man, I can still, ah, but I knew it was over. So I went to therapy, and what the therapist pointed out was, so when you were in Clemson and that electric feeling, when do you get that? And what was happening is I was getting that when I would go to the bar. I would get that electric feeling. I was drinking like a maniac, but I could always be on, and the focus would be on me, and I was gregarious, and, so I was, I felt that electricness when I was in the bar and drinking. So I didn't understand that. But once she said it, I thought, man, hold on, that's true. What am I going to do about that? So having that understanding of self and what I was the dot, connecting the dots became extremely important. Um, and I think that that's what the individual seeks to do. We have to better understand why we're doing things and why things impact us so we can push and move through them. Interesting. You know, I'd say for me personally, I, I can also relate. I did feel that at the bar for much of my 20s. Um, I also felt it, even though ultimately I, it was a short-lived career because it didn't necessarily align with my values, I felt it when I was an equities trader, when I traded stocks. The, the competitiveness, it was a game every day. And from 9.30 to 4, it was on. And there was a scorecard. And every day was a new day. And you were packed like sardines. You had a desk. You had a space. There was someone to your right, to your left. They were everywhere. There was energy. There was yelling. There, there was screaming. There was some days people throwing monitors. Uh, but it, it, it felt like the game continued on. Uh, that was the one part of the job I liked. Yeah, yeah. Because it was electric. That crackling electricity in the air, like, geez, huh? and, and I'm going to kick everyone's butt in here, too. Let's go. It's time. <laughs> so, you know, here we are. You and I are, are talking about our past. And, you know, something I think about as I'm in middle age now, I think about this this healthy balance. And how do you think about this of, are you, and you touched on this in one of your chapters, how much do you spend your time thinking about ruminating on the past 
versus the future. And how do you think about that healthy balance? Um, and then I'll throw in obviously the present. Uh, so how do you think about that balance of what's healthy in terms of thinking about the past? What, when is that productive? When does that slip into unproductive territory or, or depression, anxiety, you know, anxiety, if you will? And then the fu- future, future also same thing. Future can become depressing and, and also drive anxiety. And then you've got kind of, I, I think, the magic space, the present. So how do you think about that relationship? Yeah, I think that that ruminating is the word, key word. That if we're ruminating, that means we've just, we're so narrowly focused on something that has occurred in the past. I think that it can be very healthy to focus on aspects of our past because how we learn. I, what did I do there? What was that mistake? It's like watching film and basketball or football. I, oh, I put my foot there. That's why it got by me. I opened my hip. I learned from that. But, but you surely wouldn't want to watch that same film for 12 hours, that same clip over and over and over and over, because it would be too much. I can get my learning in watching it twice. So I think there's a healthiness in understanding things that have happened in our past, but I think we go over the board into this depressive mindset if we keep just replaying this negativity in our minds. Because I think what happens, if we think of the mind as an echo chamber, negativity can just really kind of push everything out and this negativity can just echo around in that chamber. So what we want to do is find ways to have positivity that can push away a vast majority of that negativity. Um, Also, as we think about the future, um, this is, if I do too much of it, I'm really starting to be anxious about what's coming. This is anxiety. but I also want to be planful about what my ideas are that will drive me towards something in the future. But you said the most important aspect of all of them, the, the present moment, because I submit that everything else is a fantasy. Everything's a fantasy outside of the present moment. What happened in the past is gone. You can't put your hands on that's gone. It's only in your mind. What will happen in the future? Same thing. You don't know. It's only in your mind. You're going to come up with 7 billion versions of what could happen. And when you get to that moment, one of those things happen, and you spent all of your time ruminating over those 6 million other options that never happen. They never come to pass. So if we can find the ability to focus on the present, and one way that we can do that is if we focus on breathing. I know people talk about this all the time. But if you, if you do the, a little exercise of, all right, I'm going to really focus on if I'm breathing deep, if I'm breathing shallow, I'm going to take two minutes to really focus on how I'm breathing. You can't worry about the past or the future if you really focus on your breathing. It brings you into the current moment. And if that's what we really have in this world, that's where we want to be. I want to be in this moment, right? Uh, what we talked about 15 minutes ago, Jason, is gone forever. But what we're talking about now is really all we have. So I want to hang in there. I want to stay in that space and not be as worried and ruminating about the future nor the past, but staying in that current moment. So whether you're a professional athlete or you're a working professional, I think many people are goal oriented. You know, they, they, they have a goal, they put a plan in place and they take the necessary steps or actions to hopefully accomplish that goal. 
And what I believe to be one of the most powerful tools there is visualization. And so how do you think about visualization and its effectiveness? And what, what have you seen there? Yeah, I use I use this this work and this concept of visualization with my players all almost ad nauseum. They almost see Doc walking up like uh, we're going to talk about visualization. We know what Doc is going to talk about, but I I do see it as extremely important because one thing I see visualization as rehearsal, and I believe so. If I have a big meeting or a big something that's big that's an opportunity, I've rehearsed it in my head how I see it going. And I've thought about different ways it could go. All right, so if I do this and they respond this way, here's what I would do. And then I let it go. I kind of think through it and then let it go. I do that through a number of scenarios because I think if it's rehearsal, when I get to the moment in front of me, I'll end up saying, I've already been here and you haven't. I'm ahead of you already because I've already been here and you, you didn't do the work of visualization. So seeing our future in those little moments that we can visualize, I believe gives us a leg up. So if I'm coming off the pick and roll and the, and we're, we're playing Utah and we're defending the pick and roll with Malone and Stockton, we're running it, you're going to have a tough time in that pick and roll at the top of the key. But one of the things that you'll want to do is visualize, okay, so if I hedge on it, this is what Stockton usually does. So I'm going through it in my mind. Not only did I see it on the film, I'm in my mind going through it. So I see that passing lane and I give myself an opportunity to step in that lane because of that visualization process. So I just see it as a rehearsal and that if we do it enough times, we'll find moments in the game or in life that we say, I've already been here. Oh my God, I've already been here. I've done this in my head already. That's a good thing. And I'm curious from your perspective, what can go wrong in visualization? Because I think most people are familiar with it, yet I'm sure that we're making mistakes along the way because it's clearly not working for everyone. So what are some of the common pitfalls you see? I think the, one of the pitfalls that you can have in visualization is almost moving into a space of anxiety. That's the obvious one. But if I, I'm just now overcommitted to seeing it over and over and over and now all of a sudden i'm starting to be anxious about it oh my god i'm not going to be able to stop that bit oh my god what am i going to do i'm seeing so now i've moved it into a space of anxiousness which no longer serves me right so i think it's i think that is probably the biggest struggle that athletes or really anyone can have if you almost begin to over visualize um and and trusting that visualization is a struggle. So I'm gonna visualize, do I trust that I may have a deep enough sense or understanding that I could see something that truly could be come to pass? I may not even trust it. Um, so how good does it do us to visualize if I, I don't really trust my process? I'm gonna do it. I don't know if that, it almost seems silly, but I'll do it. Yeah, well, it's probably not gonna work as effectively. You, know, you said trust the process. We actually have a neon piece of art, trust the process, uh, from our friend, the artist Olivia Steele. And, and funny, funny story about that. When we, we live in Miami now, we used to live in Brooklyn, and we lived in the same condo building as J.J. Reddick. And when he was with the Sixers, I said, J.J., you got to come by and see our art. I'm not a Sixer fan, but, like, you got to see it. He was like, oh, my God, this is so great. And it was, a, you know, thinking about Joel Embiid, but... 
So on that note, you know, I think about trust the process, I'm going to segue to one of your chapters. Do you trust that the moment will unfold the way it's supposed to? To me, this is like the hardest, <laughs> the hardest question of all the questions. I think it is so difficult when you're in a period of uncertainty uh, or dealing with extreme adversity or at a crossroads to kind of sit back whatever faith you subscribe to, let go, let God, whatever it is, but to truly trust that the moment will unfold the way it's supposed to. Very, very difficult. It is difficult, but I what the one thing that I think I've done in my life is I have, through the process of understanding myself more and more, I believe in myself that I have prepared for everything that I'll face. So for instance, my dad died when I was 15. My dad had given me everything he needed to give me by the time he passed. Everything. He'd already given it to me. He'd given me everything I needed by the time he moved on. I didn't understand that in the moment. But now that I'm older, I truly understand. He'd given me what he had to give me, and it was his time to move on. I believe that every moment that comes up in my life, I'm fully prepared for. Fully prepared for whatever it is. I have no idea what that next question will be, what that next situation will be but I believe deeply that I'm prepared for it. So then that means I am better suited to trust that it's going to unfold the way it's supposed to. So I say to my wife, and she argues with me a lot over this because she's the detail-oriented person in our relationship, and I'm the big picture. Well, I'll, I'll move around and say, hey, so I think we should move to the other side of town. I think it's something's telling me that's better for the kids, and let's make this call. Let's do this. And she's like... Corey, do you realize how many details go along with that? I'm like, no, I, I know, but it'll work. You know it's going to work, honey. It always does. Yeah, don't worry. So, yeah, but I got to do all the details. Yeah, that's okay. Don't worry about it, sweetheart. It'll all happen. Um, this is me trusting that things will unfold and it'll work out. That doesn't mean that I don't understand that there are a number of things, spaces that we have to occupy and things that we have to do along the way. But I always trust that that process will unfold to my benefit and those around me. Now, I think there was a, it was me moving in that direction and learning that it took me to better trust myself for me to understand that I, I kind of see the world that way. Um, but I don't, and it may not be that we can arrive there, Jason, overnight or r relatively quickly, but if we can move in a way that's almost process oriented that says, I want to trust that things will work on my behalf, and I don't want to be ruminating. I don't want to be worried about how the future will be. I want to trust that it happens in the way that it should. Um, and I think that we can take bites of that space, of that apple, and that will progress us and move us in the right direction. So do you think it's more nature or nurture? In other words, do you think this is due to your life experiences or the work you've done, or you just think this is who I am. I've kind of always been this way. I'm always, always been an optimist. I always see the bright side. I always see the big picture. Or do you have to work at that? Yeah, I think that, I think this question, this philosophical question of nature and nurture, I think there's an answer. I think it's both and. I don't think it's one. I, people have asked this question for thousands of years. I think the answer is pretty obvious. It's both that part of a, a part of what we have will be nurtured out of us. It has to be nurtured and shown and pulled from us. 
but there also be natural senses and options and abilities that will occur that just happen to be in our favor. But once we blend the two, I think that's really how things work. For me, I have seen the world in an op- from an optimistic stance. The glass is usually half full, um, and it's worked for me. That doesn't mean that's the only way to look at it. Um, so, But I also feel that this nurturing sense of growing up in a small, tight-knit African-American community in a predominantly white space drew me closer to those elders in my world that I felt comfortable with and loved by and special. That helped me be who I was as a football player. And then once I kind of found my way and got my legs under me, it helped me kind of find my academic way. So I think it was really a a both-end approach um, from all those aspects. So I would say I'm also a, a big picture guy, if you will. I'm an optimist. But I will say, as the parent of two young girls, they're you know five and a half and three, and I look at the mental health epidemic, specifically among teenagers. There's that crazy statistic from the CDC. I think it was sometime in 2020 where like one out of four teenagers was clinically depressed or contemplated. Uh, ending their life. I think it was ending their life. It was, it was was insane. And I think of, I think it's early innings in terms of the unintended consequences of, of schools being shut due to COVID and just social media, TikTok, self-harm, the whole, the the whole thing. I don't think there's one culprit here, but to zoom out, I'm concerned about mental health specifically with kids What's your take as a psychotherapist zooming out? If you like zooming out in the world, like what are you should, how concerned are you about mental health? I'm extremely concerned. Um, And I think that this part of me that's not as concerned rests in the fact that the generational cohort of these 15 to 25 year olds have stood up and said, "Hey, we're gonna you're gonna support us in terms of mental wellness. The world's going. We're not. We're, we're gonna demand that we find that level of support, which is new territory, right? We haven't really had that in this, especially in this country, before. Um, I think that these generational cohorts are starting to demand support in a way that we hadn't really seen before. Now you look at Simone Biles and and some of these younger folks that are stay, saying." Hey, so I'm not even I'm not even doing this event because I'm not my mind is not in the right space. And I don't care what anyone says, which you probably wouldn't have found 25, 30 years ago. You wouldn't really. The athletes going to push through it, even though they might have had the same, if not deeper struggle. They were not you weren't going to hear about it because they were going to push through it. Um, I am deeply concerned especially in the work that I do in the African-American community, because there's stigma around mental wellness anyway. So if we continue with a lack of normalization around engaging mental wellness, and then we look at pockets of communities of color where they're not really going to engage and we don't really believe that that can be helpful for us, but all of these pressures and layers of struggle especially over the last few years that have come down heavy on us, that's not going anywhere. 
that weightiness is going to just continue to stay on us. And there may not be options out of that. One thing that I submit is my dissertation work, um, my, my doctoral work was really around finding confidants and confiders in the African-American community that can be trained to be supportive of mental wellness. Because if we're not going to go seek therapy, but our struggles don't go away, what we'll do is we'll trust people like the barbershop. In the African-American community, the barbershop is a critically important space. It's not just where you get your hair cut. It's where you get stuff off your chest that you talk about heavy laden issues. Um, so I'm in Minneapolis and this has really kind of been the, the epicenter for racial unrest in our country over the last number of years. So when we watched, when the African-American community watched George Floyd be murdered, that was not just a moment of, oh, my God, look at that. There were 400 years of history on that moment. 400 years of history came down on that moment. So we have co different community views and we're not necessarily going to get that therapeutic support, but we're struggling. So how do we find ways in which to prepare our community to help bear some of that burden, recognize some of that struggle, give resources that we can be supportive of? Um, but it's not easy. That's not easy. So that's where my concern comes from. But we can't stand idly by hoping that it fixes itself because it won't. So we have to do the work day to day of preparing ourselves, taking bite sized um, attacks on it um, and, and working to better ourselves. You know, to me, you mentioned the barbershop. I can't help but think of our need for real world social connection. We need connection. We lost that. I don't think we understood how much we needed it until we lost it. Yes, I agree, Jason. I think that's that may be the most critical point right there. We didn't realize, and I don't think you do, you don't realize what you got until it's gone. And then once it's gone, you say, what in the, I'm used to just going to the grocery store and seeing neighbors and standing in my yard with my neighbors and giggling. And now it was all of a sudden snatched away. So now do we come back into the world with a newfound appreciation for connection. I don't know because I don't, I think that we're so bullheaded. And one of the things in this country that we've been taught is sold a bill of goods of individual, rugged individualism. So we're supposed to be individuals. We're supposed to not be dependent on our neighbors or anyone. Just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That doesn't help us in these moments. We need a, we need a collectivistic move. We need to be coming together in a way that says, I'm dependent on you. I need you in my life. I need my neighbors. I need my friends. I don't know that we're set up over all these years as a country to really be that. We'd have to do some heavy lifting to start to turn into a collectivistic society, and that's not what we are. So how do you manage that? I don't know. So I, and I'll be quiet, Jason, but I'll submit this. I think that what, the way we can attack it is to focus on our, our own personal social networks. Make sure that our social networks are collectivistic. The whole country may not be, but my social network, we're going to talk about some things. And we're going to say, hey, we got to make sure we're staying together. and Let's make sure that we're setting things up where we're connecting. So if, if multiple people are doing that collectivistic work in their no social networks, I think we can make hay there. One of my all-time 
favorite studies was the Rosetta study. I don't know if you're familiar with it, Rosetta study. So to, to summarize, it was, a I think, a small town, I want to say in Pennsylvania in like the 50s, where it was like the early stages of heart disease were starting to pop up around the country. And this was a small, tight-knit Italian community, multi-generational living. Uh, in terms of diet, they did all the, you know, they were eating tons of pasta and meatballs. They were smoking, they were drinking, but they were very tight-knit. They had dinners frequently together. They would, you know, always be uh, connecting with their neighbors, having real meaningful conversation. And they did not have the same degree of heart disease where everyone else in the country was experiencing. It was like this anomaly of what, what is going on in this town? And what happened in the 60s, people started to move away, go off to colleges, families started to break up, boom, heart disease right back to where it was. And to me, I love this study, because I think, at least in, in my world here at Mind Body Green, we can be so focused on you know, the, the diet, the exercise, the supplements and all those things. And, and look, they, they all matter, but you cannot underestimate the power of real world, meaningful IRL connection. And that's what that study says. That's right. Yeah. I mean, and that's, well, come on, Jason, that's simple, right? I think, and, and that this is not to diminish the importance of all those other factors. It doesn't diminish any of that understanding. But if I have connection, this is what the human agency calls for, right? The human calls for connection. I need connection. And if I can find it, it becomes a protective factor against a whole lot of stuff. It protects me. But the lack thereof, right, is, is a factor that is not is such a negative sense Um that opens us up to so many other struggles. So understanding that we need those connecting factors, that we need that collectivistic view now more than ever. Now more than ever, we need to come together. Um, and I'm nervous for that though, Jason, that we won't get it done. We're teetering, right? Let's be clear that all, all um, forms of government are nothing but experiments. That's all they are. They're all experiments. Well, where's, where's our experiment stand? I hope it makes it, but most great societies get a two, 250-year run at it, and they crumble, not from outside. They crumble from within. So what are we going to do to stave off that? A much bigger conversation, and I think you, you raise a valid point that many people are concerned with. Um, but but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pivot. I'm going to bring it back full circle um, to your unique purview working in the NBA, you know, you work with the best athletes in the world. And, and what I'm always curious about, and I think there are parallels to, to professionals as well as, you know, especially at that level, if you're, if you're a professional athlete, I think to, to some degree, talent is, is equal. You know, obviously there are some players that have a bit more talent, maybe a little bit more gifted. Uh, and, and if you just put injuries aside, what do you think separates those who have decent careers or careers that fizzle from those who go on to become great from from your perspective as a psychotherapist mentally what what's the difference between those people yeah i mean 
I just I had the the privilege of watching Derrick Rose play at the Pistons, um, and even though he's had a number of injuries, <laughs> D Rose is a different dude. Um, and I would tell you that the, what you what I know his difference to be, and and I think most really good athletes that end up making it and extend that time and have find a modicum of success is that they are so mentally sharp um, that they believe every time they step on the court, that question of that we were talking about earlier of what, what do you, what do you trust that life things will unfold on your behalf? D Rose and those high level players trust that they have put in the preparation and that it's going to work because I'm sharp and I'm going to be sharper than you. So you can line up against me and you can get in your, in your defensive stance, but you know already that you can't stay in front of me. You already, you know that not only do I know it, but you also know it. So that mental edge, that sharpness that those players have, I think is what pushes them over the edge. It makes them better. Um, and they expect adversity. They expect it. It's not like adversity shows up and they say, man, we got to deal with that. They expect that adversity will show up, um, but they bounce back quicker. Hey, that's all right. We're Here we go. Um, so I think those are elements that I've seen that they're mentally sharp. They expect that adversity will show up, but that they will endure and move through. Um, and one thing that I used to hear Derek Rose say is, hey, surround me by hoopers. Right, put hoopers around me, and we'll we'll be all right. Um, and then hoopers are people that love the game of basketball that just are going to grind. Patrick Beverly is a hooper, right? So I think that element, those elements, I think are the difference maker for a really good player that ends up making it in the league. That's just my stance. Interesting. So, in closing, I figured we have a little fun. Let, let's say, you know, in, in a dream. Tomorrow you get a call from the Brooklyn Nets and they say, all right, you're coming over. You're going to be the, the, the team's new psychotherapist. I, I'm, a, I'm a Nets fan. I lived in Brooklyn, although I live in Miami now, so I think I may have to adopt the heat. So let's say you walk in. You're the, you're the new Brooklyn Nets psychotherapist. Kevin Durant walks into your office. What do you ask? What, what's your first question to Kevin Durant? Because I, I think he I, – I <laughs> My first question would be, what's your genius, Katie? What's your genius? Tell me what your genius is, right? I want to know what they, what he thinks that his genius is. Is your genius purely basketball? Is your genius that you're a great teammate and a connector? I want to know and understand your genius, and I would be curious with them, with him over that that question. The, another question that I would also have. So you said what my first question would be, but I probably have a ton of questions, Jason. Um, Talk to me about your sense of belonging. And I wouldn't frame it either. Usually people say, well, what do you mean by belonging? And I say, well, whatever you think of belonging as to be, whatever you think of it, not what I think. What are you, do you, what is your sense of belonging? Um, it can be in life. It can be in basketball. What's your sense of that? Which would make them turn. You want to think about that. You have to be curious with yourself. So, what he would respond off of that would be quite interesting. And I would assume give more fodder an opportunity to kind of go deeper. So those would be some questions that I would ask him. I would just be curious with him. What would you ask? 
So you think he's searching for a home? I, I well, I mean, it, it, just looking at the pattern of his existence in the NBA, uh, Seattle. But it, I mean, Seattle to Oklahoma City doesn't really count. OKC, uh, Golden State, um, Brooklyn. I mean, he's just kind of he's been and he's had a hell of a lot of success. But I wonder if he has ever felt like the squad was his squad, because everywhere he went. He had dogs around him. KD has never just been alone to build it. He's kind of had dogs around him. And our GM at Detroit was the assistant GM at OKC that helped build all of that KD and Perkins and that whole crew. Um, And then he went to Golden State. And that was – got a lot of stars there. And then you bring – Kyrie with you, and now you have Simmons. So I don't know. I'd be curious with him, though. There'd be some fun there. And so my last question, to me, Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time and arguably the greatest athlete of all time. From a mental perspective, what do you think made him so great? He, he really suffered no foolishness in his a kind of directness of who, what he was going to be demanding of or with all players. I'm not here to be your friend. I don't need any friends. I'm going to be so demanding. And if you can't take it, get him out of here, get somebody else in the can, which is very similar to Kobe. Kobe used, Kobe said, and so I'm, I'm equating the two, but Kobe said, I took it as my job to step on the court and make you question your professional choice. Right. I mean, think about that, that I step on the court and if you defend me, I want at the end of the game for you to say, maybe this is just not for me, that I have beaten you down so mercilessly that you have to figure out if this is the work that you want to do. I think Michael did. I think he took that from Mike. Mike did the same thing. Like uh, not only because we had to think about Michael's kill you on the buckets, but he going to lock you down on defending, too. Those guys weren't just playing one side of the court. They were the best defenders in the game, and they were the best scorers in the game. Right? They were all around basketball players. Um, I think he just had an edge that no one really could match. You're not going to be able to keep up with this. And that doesn't mean that, the, that everyone around wasn't good. They were good athletes. You're not going to mentally be as sharp and have the edge and the killer instinct that Mike had, just not going to have it. You know, I, I think I watched the the documentary on Jordan that came out, I think, a year or so ago. And to me, it really illustrated his almost superpower of how competitive he was to, to, to a degree where I'm like, whoa, that's unhealthy. Yes, <laughs> too much. Too much. Like, you see him, and there were still moments he was wrestling with 25 years ago. You could see how visibly angry he was. I'm like, whoa, there's a weight there. It made him great, but there's a weight. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And I, and I would venture to say that if you ask Mike, would he change anything? And yeah, I wouldn't change a thing. I would, I would have been harder on myself, right? That's probably what he would say. I would like, I wouldn't change anything. And it's still today as they interview him, things from 30 years ago are impacting him. And he looks like he's 
Like he's crying and visibly shaken 30 years after the moment. The Jordan rules, you say the Jordan rules to him, he's still pissed. And, and he he doesn't like Isaiah. Like, I don't like him. I, I just, I hate, I, I don't want to talk to him. Like, that was a game that you guys were playing 30 years ago. And you won. You figured it out. But he's still like, oh, I just, get him away from me. There's nothing I share with him. Get him away and he sucks. <laughs> like, you would think that those old men would be, no. I don't care. <laughs> I love that. I love it. Too funny. Corey, such a pleasure. Congrats on the book. How am I doing? 40 conversations to have with yourself. Thank you so much. Hey, I appreciate you, Jason. Take care.